Hello and welcome to Four Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews. This is episode 99. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by one other nerd, Ryan. Hello. The nerd ladies have been straightened down by sicknesses, but will become even more powerful than you can imagine. I believe Christina, though, has got the sickness of software releases, though. I'm sure she's sick of work, so... Oh, yeah, this is true. She's definitely (laughs) going to be sick of that. The weekly barrage of comics and comic-related news can be scary, so we're here to let you know what to check out and what to avoid. We read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them, as well as anything else that's popped up in the world of comics. There is a chance of spoilers, so if you're worried about them, take a break now, go read the week's pull list, and then come on back. This week, we'll be reviewing Batman Annual Number 2, Moon Knight Number 189, Mystic U Number 1, Batman Creature of the Night, number one. Rick and Morty, number 32. And Super Sons Annual, number one. On Pull Pass or Complain on the Internet, we've got Darkhawk, number 35. Stop the presses! This just in! News from the bullpen! Alright, so this week's news is going to be probably a quickie because there's not really much out about it quite yet. But they announced that Netflix has ordered two seasons. Uh, I think it's 20 episodes has been ordered, so it'll be two 10 episode seasons of Sabrina, not Sabrina the Teenage Witch, so it is Sabrina the Teenage Witch, but they're just calling it Sabrina, and it's going to be based off of the pretty fucking dark recent Archie comics. They're horror books. There was kind of some speculation as to why they're not going to be at CW. I kind of have to wonder that myself, considering that's the home of Supernatural, but I think it's probably because Netflix is losing the Marvel stuff, and they're kind of going in a, a little bit of a darker direction, like they bought Millar World, I'm sorry, Miller World, and CW seems to be kind of firmly in DC's pocket, considering they are CBS Warner Brothers. So I, I think that's probably why this stuff's heading over here. So uh, I think that's kind of why I'm kind of excited to see how close to the other stuff they get, because those comics were pretty fucking dark. Yeah, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was a pretty accurate description of the book. I mean, you're going to get Satanism, you're going to get cannibalism, you're going to get murder. I mean, these are dark things that if you're going to use that property the way you want, I don't think are going to work on network TV. I know this is a weird thing to say about an Archie comic, but they're kind of Lovecraftian. So, Well, she literally becomes the Bride of Cthulhu in one of the arcs in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So yes, very much so. It's just, it's like bizarre, especially for people who grew up with Melissa Joan Hart, but this ain't your daddy's Sabrina. <laughs> Or your grandfather's. We've chosen The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as our pick of the week before. So it's a pretty good series. Personally, for me, it's really interesting that we've actually been doing this podcast long enough to see new series that we started reviewing, like Chrononauts and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, go through the cycle and become TV shows. That is kind of amazing to me. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Speaking of which, this is episode 99. Episode 100 is next time, and once we can get everybody together, we'll uh, have some special stuff for you guys. Nerd Roundup is going to be a logistical nightmare, but it'll be great. Dear Lord, will it be a logistical nightmare? <laughs> Luckily enough, Ryan takes care of the logistics. <laughs> I heard the cats. <laughs> they just come here and meow. Meow. <laughs> Alrighty. Back to comics. Every episode, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd, and my pick goes to Batman Annual Number 2. Our companion song is Some of These Days, composed by Shelton Brooks and sung by Sophie Tucker originally, but a whole bunch of people have sung this song classic it is a classic and it's actually the song that's playing in the book like they put the lyrics to the song throughout this particular issue it's 107 years old in public domain so i can play the whole damn song so seriously though it is a melancholy song and it's 
probably going to make you cry about as much as this issue. So we're going to give him a teaser now in the whole song at the end of the episode, right? Right. So that there's also a Bing Crosby version that I, I also listened to. I picked the Sophie Tucker because it seems to be the original like recording of the song. But Tom King's personal favorite, and I was looking through his tweets this morning, he actually tweeted out where the song came from and what it was. Though I had already gone and found it myself because that's the kind of nerd I am. <laughs> His favorite version is the Bing Crosby version, so if you want to listen to the song while reading this particular issue, uh, go ahead and listen to the Bing Crosby version. But for us, uh, we're going to put the Sophie Tucker one on here. Let's take a listen now, and uh, like Ryan said, the full thing's going to be at the end of the episode. Some of these days, you'll miss me, honey. Some of these days, you're going to be so lonely. You'll miss my hugging, you're gonna miss my kissing, you're gonna miss me, honey, when I'm far away, I feel so lonely. I don't know if you'll be able to hear the song over your sobbing throughout this issue. Seriously, Jesus Christ. So, we've got Batman Annual Number 2, DC Comics, Some of These Days, written by the wonderful and magnanimous, we love him to death, Tom King. Pencils and inks by Lee Weeks and Michael Lark. Colors by Elizabeth Breitweiser and June Chung. What can I say about this book? It's probably one of the most romantic comics I've ever fucking read, and I've said that before, and I think it might have been about Bat and Cat before as well. Yep. This particular issue, it's kind of like a side thing, but it's kind of related to what's happening in the Batman books right now. It's about the life of a couple of just broken people who found each other. They literally make this point they've been making in the main series. The story follows through the building of Bat and Cat's romance from before he asked her to marry him. The story in this particular issue goes to its heartbreaking and inevitable and very, very real end. And I don't know what Tom King does. He just makes Batman real, and I really can't say any more about this issue without crying. God damn you, Tom King, you glorious bastard. What did you think? I thought this was fantastic. Art-wise, I like that their costumes, because this is kind of a flashback, seem very retro to me. They seem almost like their 60s costumes. The Batmobile, too. So I like that a lot. I like the way that he plays with the cat and the bat. I like that interplay between them. That seems very real and believable to me. I know Carissa has commented on that many times. It's weird to think of Tom King as a romance writer, but in a lot of ways, this is a very real and believable romance, and that's what makes it so affecting. Like the them basically chasing each other continuously. I like her leaving the rat behind as kind of a, a taunt and message to him that he uses to solve the crime in like two seconds flat, but doesn't quite confront her right away about it. I like that a lot. I like that his most precious treasure that he hides away is a single pearl that's slightly damaged that she finds. And that, you know, obviously is from his mother's necklace and that leads them to some understanding of each other. And the end, I don't want to give it away either, but oh my God, will it rip your heart out. If you don't feel emotion about this book, you're a heartless, heartless monster. I mean, the Joker would cry. I have to say the DC annuals, and we're going to cover another one this issue too, have been pretty good. They're kind of classic in the way that they're very standalone stories that kind of relate back to the, at least the tone and feel of the main book and tell a story that would kind of disrupt the flow of the main story, but 
definitely add to it. They're artistic stories. And when I say artistic, I don't just... They're pieces of art in the writing, the style that they do them in, the art that they do them in, like you were talking about how the, these look classic. It doesn't look like Darwin Cook's art, but it reminds me of what he was basically doing. He was trying to make the art itself look retro, but modern. And like they look like they're wearing spandex. Yes. It's that good that the line work is so good that it looks like it's a couple of people running around in like early versions of the costume before he added armor and everything else. They both look real, but it looks like a 70s Batman book. The way that they draw the costumes, that you can actually tell that they're wearing clothing. In the same way that Alex Ross drawings, you can tell that it's actual clothing and not just... That sometimes artists will draw it like it's just their skin, the costume. And here, you can definitely tell it's clothing they have. Yeah, everything's like that. There's a scene where she sneaks into Wayne Manor fucking somehow, and he's just in his pajamas because he's for once having just a, a relaxing night and he runs through the place and the drapery and by drapery i'm using the artistic term drapery which is basically how the clothes and the cloth just kind of go against the skin and with movement it's fucking perfect it's like literally the artist got somebody to do this but there's no way you're going to get somebody to do this because there's like him jumping over the couch they don't leave the details out but it's not like super detailed stuff it's basic lines not just the detail of the art, but the details in the writing, the way at the end where they're not showing like pity to each other, but they're still comforting each other and the way that they're both looking out for each other. And that's real relationships. And they even make a callback to the issue. I think it's the issue where he actually asks her to marry him. So like this is not an Elseworld story. And while it might not be how DC ends up, because I'm sure they'll reboot Batman a hundred times in the next hundred years, this is how this Batman lives out his life, basically. And you can tell the way that Batman's being written right now, this is how this Batman lives out his life with this Catwoman. And it's just touching as fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really good. This is sort of a standalone story. So if for some ungodly reason you've been both listening to our podcast and haven't been reading Tom King's arc on Batman. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you because you haven't been listening to us, but you still listen to us. Pick this one up and read it because it is fantastic. I don't think there's too much more we can really say about it without getting into spoiler territory. And I don't want to rob someone of the emotional journey and catharsis they're going to go on in this book. If you ever, ever liked Batman, read this book. And then go read uh, The War Jokes and Riddles. But read this one. Like, right now. <laughs> go get it. Like, have a copy of this book. It's, wow. I'm going to give it five some of these days. I will give it four and a half from the first kiss to the last. It was just fantastic. Moving on to uh, I, what I thought was also another fantastic book. Yeah, for a fifth week, this week had a lot of really good books. Maybe it's just us. Maybe we picked the best of the best. And I think that's true. <laughs> we did pretty good this week. We have uh, Moon Knight number 189 from Marvel Comics, Crazy Runs in the Family Part 2, written by Max Bemis, pencils by Jason Burroughs, inks by Jason Burroughs and Guillermo Ortega, colors by Max Lopez. Sometimes the truth hurts. In this issue, we get to actually see Moon Knight and Bemis' take on Moon Knight. Kanchu seems to act basically as the manager for different personalities and personas that make up Moon Knight. He can call up different personalities that he wants to come to the forefront when they're needed. They're not perfect servants. Sometimes they resist and, and so on, but he does seem to be the overall controller. We follow Moon Knight as the avatar of the Moon God and the reborn Ra, avatar of the Sun God, 
as they both investigate in their own way the trail to their targets. Moon Knight goes to the dark and underground places to pursue the truth, a powerful psychic who warps the minds of others, and Ra works his way upwards to a high tower to make contact with a powerful crime boss, an enemy of Moon Knight. Their two paths are destined to cross and collide in future issues. I really, really enjoyed this issue. There were a lot of things in here that I liked. I think the art in this is spectacular. In particular, the coloring in here is really great. Because you have these two protagonists in here. You have Moon Knight and you have Ra. And the way that they do the coloring on the two, it's two different color palettes. You know, Moon Knight has a more, one that would be more suited for night. And then Ra has these really bright colors. And the other thing that I like about his panels is usually he's the one in color and everyone else is in gray until he interacts or touches with them. Mm-hmm. And that's really good. You really do get to understand what Max Bemis's take on Moon Knight is here when you have all the different personalities interacting with each other. I think that's really, really interesting. We talked before about how Moon Knight's solid white, you know, would get really bloody. And you see in here where he's beating the crap out of people and his uniform is soaked in blood, how good that looks. This one's really interesting. I really, really liked it. I thought Ra was interesting. I thought there were cool twists when when Moon Knight is tracking down the psychic and he's like, oh, psychics are pencil neck geeks, so I'm going to have to use my mind, but not my fist so much. And then he kicks open the door and the truth is just this huge, hulking beast that is also a psychic. I thought that was a nice little twist. Overall, I thought this one was a fun read. It's really interesting. I think Max Bemis is a good choice to write this. And I think the art in this one is pretty spectacular, too. What do you think of it? I'm surprised. It's not quite Tom King, but Bemis has got a Tom King feel like he's grasped this character and made him interesting. Uh, Not that Batman really needs much help being interesting, but Moon Knight definitely does. Because he's had kind of a hard life. He's supposed to be Marvel's Batman, but he's this weird fucking psycho guy. And not to say that Batman is not a psychopath, because there's not really a better explanation of Batman than psychopath. (laughs) But... Moon Knight has just been this kind of weird, quirky guy who's like, you know, when the superheroes get together in a bar, they're like, yeah, that guy. So (laughs) Bemis has got Mark Spector down. He's got the character down. He's got it playing in a way that he's rivaling as fun to read as a cross between Batman and Deadpool. He's not silly like Deadpool, but he's fucking crazy like Deadpool. And he's got the multiple viewpoints as voices Mm -hmm. down, but also it's just dirty street-level action at the level of a Batman-style book. I hope that they can keep the interest in Moon Knight and kind of grow him to be a bigger Marvel character because he's super fucking interesting right now. And the art is just fucking gorgeous the art really is on point especially the parts with raw like i really am struck by how good those kind of gray backgrounds look with the orange and red raw walking through them they look really really good to me it's not just like representatory art which a lot of times comic books have representatory art it's artistic art it's like making a statement not just say here's a guy who's dressed all in white Right. And the fact that they have these two distinct worlds that they're operating in, I liked that as well. I thought this was a really good one. And I really can't say enough about the coloring on this book. It really makes it come to life. To be able to do those dark blues in the nighttime, and then those oranges and reds of fire in the day, and both have them look rich and vibrant, really important. And if you're going to do raw, being able to draw fire is really important. They can do that here. It's not as easy as you would think to do that. I am an artist. I've been drawing since I was five, and fire is 
fucking hard. I, I know it sounds like, you know, artists are like, oh, you're whining. I'm like, no, you haven't fucking tried. <laughs> fire is hard to get right. Yeah, fire, water, and hands. Those are like really hard things to draw. Seriously, the fluids are always just a pain in the fucking ass and fire flows if you're doing it right. Otherwise, it just looks dumb. Yeah, I mean, that's why if you ever will watch in film too, they will often make fire when they try and personify it. They'll have it act almost like a living creature. Like if you've seen Backdraft or Only the Brave or whatever, fire is alive. And these images here kind of bring that to to life, for lack of a better word. It's pretty good. I will give it four. Well, what can I say? The truth hurts. I'm going to give it four. You see, Mark Spector is crazy. But in the context of my blessing, he is, well, a quote-unquote superhero. All right. Off to more superheroes, sort of. Well, (laughs) semi-technically. They save the day, but superheroes, eh, I don't know. Superheroes meets Harry Potter? Kind of. We're going to go over to Mystic U number one, DC Comics, written by Alyssa Quitney. Pencils and inks by Mike Norton. Colors by Jordi Belair. Jordi Belair is a busy fucking person. Yes, she is. <laughs> she is damn, like, just everywhere. She's the best in the business, and she works her ass off. She's on a lot of books, and she always hits home runs when she's on them. Super, super duper fast. She's kind of a way that I can judge if the publisher considers the book to be something important or not. Like, if you see Jordi Belair on colors, you're like, oh, they care about this book. Which is good to see here. So, because uh, it's satanic, she doesn't really get her own book often. And this isn't technically her book, but it kind of is. So, Mystic U is another book that starts out in media res. We've been having that quite a lot lately. And technically, it's at the end of the story with Satana and Dr. Occult fighting and dying at the hands of something called the Malevolence. They have the power for basically one last spell between... And it's not Dr. Occult anymore. It's Rose, who's Dr. Psychic, I think. Is it her name? Yes. Uh, she and Dr. Occult kind of shared the same body. Dr. Occult is an incredibly old character. I suggest you go look him up on the internet and and read about him. He's pretty neat. They use the power of the last spell to kind of start over with a different beginning. So we go back in time before Zatanna's career started, and we retcon her early story to be one that's really Harry Potter. Very much so. Like, the only reason Warner Brothers, which owns DC, is not suing DC is because they own each other. (laughs) Seriously. The book then follows is a pretty fun take on her story and kind of several other of the DC magic users' formulative years. I loved Sargon being in there, and he's like a DM of a freaking D&D game, which I thought (laughs) was fantastic. The staff that can run the school are some of the older magic users, like Lady Xanadu and Cain and Abel. People that you will see pop up if you read any of the magic side of DC Comics. The book is a, a fun, if formulaic, kind of first adventure story. And it makes me wonder why the first Harry Potter book was as long as it was, because I got as much out of this one issue as I got out of that entire fucking book. <laughs> There's a lot of cameos in this particular issue. If you just keep your eyes out on the background and all the panels, there's a lot of stuff that you'll miss. And even in the main characters, this is as much for people who are just getting into wanting to read some magic stuff with DC characters and Zatanna as it is for people who have read DC comics for years and know their shit about the magic side of the DC universe. I think she calls out Constantine at one point, but he's not in the book because that would be a little weird him showing (laughs) up at her school. Maybe he'll be a guest speaker. Too young to be a teacher, too old to be a student. Although I do think it might not be entirely unfitting for him to be the guy in the Camaro in the student parking lot. (laughs) This is true. He's like, students keep getting younger. Oh man, I could totally see Constantine to my Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Let's do some magic. (laughs) 
No, the fucked up thing is in the Vertigo universe, he kept aging. So when Constantine, like the original Constantine actually died, he was in his fucking 60s. When they rebooted him, he's not anymore. He's back to being around her age and is, uh, I think he's actually dated Zatanna. So things are a little weird, but if like we ever had the original one outside, he'd be like, hi, grandpa, are you come to pick somebody up? Well, I think they solve a lot of the stuff that's kind of weird by having this be a restart. So this is kind of outside regular DC continuity. Like, this is the result of a spell. So anything where, like, that doesn't make sense, they're not, you know, the same age or whatever, you know, it's excused by the spell. That's a smart plot device. It's fun, and it's it gives them the option of not have to have all that overhead, and also allows them to do a bunch of stuff. They're like, hey, that's not how it happened. I'm like, bullshit, shut up. This book so heavily borrows from Harry Potter. It's not bad. It is a fun little read, especially if you like the magic characters. But when I was reading this, I really just wanted a Harry Potter universe comic book, is what it really made me want. So I suggest you go read Books of Magic. Not exactly the same. Better. Oh, Snapple. I really like Harry Potter. A lot. (laughs) I really like Tim Hunter, and I really hate Harry Potter because Tim Hunter then didn't get his shit. Anyway, (laughs) there's even this cool, like, upperclassman kind of character in here that's like a troll. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Like an actual, like, Norwegian name. I was like, all right, I fucking dig this book. (laughs) I like the kid who gets scared at magic school and goes back home to study engineering instead. (laughs) The, like, hipster kid? (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty funny. That was awesome. And then, what is his name? Plop? (laughs) Oh, the, like, slime monster? Yes. Uh, It's a fun fucking book. This is how I wanted Harry Potter to be. It is really fun. I didn't find it super compelling, to be honest, but it was. I enjoyed it while I was reading it. I don't need my books to always be compelling. <laughs> Sometimes I just want, like, chill comics. It's like the big complaint about, like, the, the DC movies is they're not super deep, but sometimes I just want something I could sit there and eat popcorn to. Sure. This is a good popcorn comic. It's not super deep, but it's not super shallow either. Yeah, I don't have any major complaints about it. I just, I was super in love with it. Yeah, I'm going to give it three. I've already survived my freshman year, and I grew up in a small town called Skutistardabrepper in Iceland, so I know all about adjustment issues. (laughs) I will give it three. I adore my child, but she is utterly mundane. Asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he is kind of a dick to her. Seriously. And that's the whole fucking start of the problem, too. How about I take us over to the merch table, and then you can stand at the merch table and show people stuff. (laughs) Sounds good. We like cool comic-related stuff, and here's something we think you might like. So my recommendation is going to be a book that you can pick up for under 20 bucks on Amazon. It should be on the bookshelf of everyone who likes comics. And that is Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. This book is amazing. It explains comics to you using the comic book format. This book is actually used in college classes where they talk about comics as literature and art. It is a, when you read it, it will change your worldview on comics, on what they are, what they can be, and what they should be. It's funny, it's interesting, it's insightful. I highly recommend it to everyone. And if you know someone who likes comics, they're going to be happy when they get this. I, I totally have to agree. I read that years ago, and I am somebody who wants to make comics. Scott McCloud is, he's kind of been an indie guy on the outside of the comics book industry, but his books, there's this one and then there's a 
at least one or two others, and I have them all, they're irreplaceable books. Nobody else really gives you this sort of viewpoint and this kind of in-depth stuff. There's a couple of the books that do similar things, like Super Gods, which is a Grant Morrison book. Also, Tom King just this week suggested people go read this book because he just reread it himself. It's a fantastic book. They give you really good insight on what is actually going on here. So comics can be kind of confusing and we do our best to help out, but I have to second this one. It's a fantastic fucking read. It's a quick read, um, but it's it's really deep and it'll help you understand what the fuck we're talking about. To me, a good analogy between Scott McCloud is if you like Alton Brown for cooking. Yes. It's very similar in that he breaks down why things work and how they should work. You know, so he'll tell you why art and words together are so impactful. What makes comics so magical? He'll explain the technical parts of how a page and a panel works, why you lay out things the way you do. He'll show you the history of comics. He'll take you over to like Japanese comics. He'll take you over to Tenten. He'll take you through the world of comics in a very interesting way that's not 100% superhero focused. You know, that it's really talking about comics as a medium not as a particular type of story it's fascinating and it's going to be like 16 bucks on amazon probably 25 bucks if you pick it up at your local store you will like it your friends will like it i I recommend it very much you'll seem smarter for having it yeah you'll seem like you know what you're talking about when you give it to your friend so good christmas gift i'm gonna swing us back over to dc sort of for batman creature of the night number one from dc comics Written by Kurt Busiek, art by John Paul Leon. Sometimes life imitates art. In this book, we meet a young boy, Bruce Wayne Wright, who lives in what seems to be the real-world Boston in the late 1960s, and this kid idolizes Batman. He exaggerates and invents his connection to his hero until art and life converge rather horrifically when his parents are murdered before him on Halloween, putting him in a coma for months. Then when he awakens, his uncle, Al... Fred. So he takes like the names of people and he'll try and make them as Batman-like as possible. So he does this to his uncle. The police officer he meets, his first name is Gordon. So he calls him Officer Gordon. So he's trying to make all these connections to the Bat mythos to make his life make sense, especially after the murder of his parents. And they end up sending him to a boarding school. So he's plagued by these disturbing nightmares of this bat-like creature hunting the criminal element down and kind of exploring the line between sanity and madness and art and reality as they all begin to blur together. It's a dark tale that blends the lines between an Elseworlds book and an autobiography, in a sense. We're left wondering what is real and what's fantastic madness. If Little Bruce's life was a comic book, he would end up a superhero. But real life? Real life isn't fair. I really liked this book a lot. This was my favorite bat book of the week. It's really rare for me to call out the lettering in a book, but this is almost written like it's a journal of this kid that you're reading. Not a diary, because diaries are for girls, which he points out, but his handwritten notes in here and the way they do that make this story feel really personal in here. I like the artwork in here. Just the book is just fantastic to me. The insights into it, I like that he's mad at his uncle for not taking him in. And the uncle is, I mean, if you read between the lines as an adult, you understand it's the 1960s. His uncle is homosexual and Child Protective Services won't let him have the kid, but he can't really explain that to the child. I think that's an interesting way to show that this kid doesn't understand everything that's going on. And at first, this book really feels like it's going to be just a straight-up story about a real-world thing where this kid likes Batman and some bad stuff happens to him, and that's how he deals with it. But then this Bat-monster thing shows up, 
and starts wrecking shop, and you're left wondering, is this the kid just inventing things to make the world make sense and make justice happen? Is this something real that's happening? I like that kind of ambiguity of the book. This really does a very good job of taking what seems like a very personal and real story and presenting you a take on what Batman is, what Batman means to people. I really like this. What did you think of it? I thought it was a fantastic book. I almost picked this one for my pick of the week, but it just wasn't quite my total style here. It is ambiguous because there are people in the background talking about the bat monster that the kid kind of just generates from his head because of his need for justice and his need for something else out there at the end of the story kind of leads towards thinking you know like you were saying if this were a normal world it just ends with bad luck for the kid and things going bad and him you know being depressed and and all that sort of stuff but it hints that this kid's gonna go put on a costume at some point in his life and it hints that this bat monster really is out there so it's kind of ambiguous towards the end of this thing i'm really interested to see where this goes i want to read the other issues so it's kurt busick so he's a fantastic comic book writer he's been doing it for a very long time you're gonna get quality out of this particular book like i said it's it almost made it there for me it's just i didn't get as emotionally invested in it as i did with the annual but it was pretty fucking close i think this one really takes the idea that superheroes are modern mythology and explores that idea of what mythology means and why we need it when there are things we can't understand or we can't make sense of we create myths to explain them you know when our great great ancestors right were looking up and hearing thunder and lightning in the sky they couldn't understand why it was happening so they had to end up creating reasons why these things happen and here this kid has all of this trauma and chaos that's happening in his life and he can't process it and i really am left wondering is all this just some fantasy that he has is he inventing all the people talking about this stuff is he inventing the not exactly happy ending but the justice ending that he seems to be getting or is it really some weird shit's happening and He's along for the ride. I don't know, and I like that I don't know. Right, I had those thoughts too. I'm like, is all this stuff actually happening? Is the bat demon actually bringing these things about? Or is is it just conveniently happening through the view of a madman? A mad child? Or, I mean, we know the kid was in a coma. Is this happening in his coma? Is this what his mind is playing out? Right. Or did he actually survive? Because you see him dying. Yes. A, a darker vision. Is this what passes before his eyes as he's dying on that kitchen floor? We don't know. And I want to find out. And that's when I know a book is good. When I want to find out what happens next. When I don't have all the answers right in front of me. There's enough interest to compel me to want to know what's going to happen. I'm pretty sure you're going to, at some point, want this as a hardback. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You'll want this as a trade. And even as an issue number one, it's pretty long. It's like 50 pages. That's like a double issue. It's going to be a good trade when it comes out. It'll be one of those trades that are the comics books can be more than punching and costumes more realistic psychological take on it. Yeah, one of those award winners you hear about. I will give this four and a half little troopers. I'm going to give it four and a half. Bruce, safe. You safe. All right, speaking of places that aren't safe, we're going to head over to Rick and Morty number 32 by Oni Press. Summer's Eve, written by Pamela Rabon. Pencils and inks by Erica Hayes. Colors by Katie Farina. I'm just going to start off by saying that Pamela Rabon is the writer of Moana, who, though apparently you saw Coco, you haven't seen Moana yet, I suggest you watch Moana. It's not as 
tear jerky as Coco probably was, but Moana is a really fun movie. I didn't choose not to see Moana. It just came out at a time when I had medical stuff going on that I couldn't really go see movies at the time. So I got you. It's out now, so go get it on DVD. You can just rent it. Good. Good. I got a lot of stuff, man. How do you react every time I tell you to go watch a TV show? <laughs> You're like, I know, I know. I got a million things to catch up on. So speaking of things I've told you to watch, I've been trying to get Rick and Morty on our particular show for a little while. Often comics that are based on cartoons are pretty trite and don't really have the magic that the animated origin of the particular comic have. They're, they're usually kind of crap. We're lucky with the Hanna-Barbera stuff, but if you go back and read the Hanna-Barbera books from long ago, not so much. I don't mean to interrupt your like summary, but I mean, there are good comics that are based on cartoons or maybe it's one way or the other like the simpsons comics are usually pretty good ducktales and uh those disney comics are usually pretty good too uncle scrooge yeah but there's there's some where it's like the licensed books are generally not great the uncle scrooge books were fantastic there's some stuff that indiana jones has that wouldn't have existed without that and the gi joe comic at marvel was so fucking much better than the tv show like but the transformers comic was total shit i agree with you usually a licensed book is usually a kiss of death for me yeah usually they like lose something in translation they just don't feel right and they're basically just another way to get some money but not this particular series the rick and morty comic has a, a very similar feel to the show but it's out every month instead of 10 episodes and then i have to fucking wait god knows how long to get more rick and morty episodes and yes i'm a rick and morty fanboy it still has that quality of the show has where it gives you an animated silly comedy thing that it shows you that basically the darkness out there in the world you know you're seeing the darkness in these characters they're fucked up people but it allows you to then safely kind of understand that darkness that everybody kind of has but not quite that bad but it's it's deep it's deep how things basically should be deep, but not, like, just cheesy. Like, we were making it deep, but it's, at the same time, a, it's a fucking cartoon. This particular issue is centered around Summer, who gets her own car, but unlike a lot of teens, her car is a futuristic flying car with an AI in it. Summer has her mom and her grandfather's brain, so she rewires the car, which at first is simply a subservient AI, but then she gives it freedom, and I'm not kidding, the car and her fall in love. It's Rick and Morty, so hold the fuck on. Rick tries to tell her better, but he doesn't kind of get through to her she doesn't listen and things go a little bit too far i don't want to explain how <laughs> by the time summer actually kind of realizes how fucked up the situation is she then decides to do what needs done at the end rick however had a fail safe that maybe wasn't as safe as possible and then the book shows series also does this too the animated series shows her dark side that comes out every once in a while she's a violent human being you have to remember this isn't a cartoon for the heroes if you want the heroes of the story morty's somewhat of a hero that he's sliding towards the villain side of things but most of the characters on rick and morty are mad scientists the only real normal person is morty's dad and he gets picked on quite a bit this is also ryan's real first foray besides like the pilot into rick and morty what did you think ryan well i think you're right that this nails the show in that it's confusing not terribly interesting and not very funny to me. I didn't hate it because I don't really feel like I know enough about the show to appreciate the book. But I think if this is going to be, if you think this is where you're going to jump into Rick and Morty, I think you're going to be lost. Can't say that it's bad because the, the art looks like the cartoon, right? So I can't complain about the art. The writing doesn't make any sense to me and isn't interesting or funny to me, but neither is the show. So I believe you when you say it nails the feel of the show. 
I just, I'm not a huge Rick and Morty fan, so I'm, I'm not going to be a huge fan of the comic. But I don't want that to be taken as I think this is a bad book. This is simply just a book that is not for me. All right, fair enough. If you don't like this and you didn't like the pilot, you're not going to like the show, so don't waste your time. I'm not convinced that I shouldn't watch more Rick and Morty yet. I mean, I, everyone says there's something there, so I think maybe I just haven't found the thing that's there yet. I'm willing to accept that it's not bad. I just haven't watched or seen enough of it to get it yet. So I jumped in at the halfway point on one episode when there was like a YouTube channel that was like basically streaming the whole series over and over again. And I just clicked on a link. The show is like good sci-fi. It might seem kind of weird and maybe boring to some people, but it, it's supposed to make you think. Uh, I don't know if you've watched very many Dan Harmon things. Did you watch Community at all? Yeah, I love Community. Okay. Dan Harmon's the guy who invented Community. Have you ever watched Harmontown or listened to Harmontown? No. Okay. So Harmontown is basically his podcast. He also did Harmon Quest, which is D&D. Dan Harmon's a fucked up individual. Like Rick is Dan Harmon, basically. Justin Roiland's the other guy who does Rick and Morty, and the show is very obvious their humor without having to worry about NBC putting a filter on them, basically. I mean, if you like Dan Harmon a lot, which if you love Community, it's a filtered Dan Harmon, but it's still Dan Harmon. If you check out any of his other stuff, then you might actually like the show. It just might take a little bit to get into it. It's sci-fi. It's hardcore sci-fi where you're not necessarily going to get it kind of right away, and you might never get it. But you might not be supposed to. It just might be there to make you think about shit. Alrighty. It doesn't measure up to the stuff we've picked earlier or any of the Batman books. It's just I thought it was a good book and it felt like the show. And like I said, it's out every month instead of what, 10 episodes a fucking year and I'm sick of it. <laughs> I still want my Szechuan sauce and I want some more fucking episodes. Anyways, I'm going to give it three and a half. What did you do? I will give it to you fucked the car, didn't you? <laughs> At least you got that much. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take us over to a more innocent corner of the world. Seriously. <laughs> We're going to go over to Super Sun's Annual Number 1 from DC Comics, Animal Planet, written by Peter J. Tomasi, pencils by Paul Pelletier, inks by Cam Smith, colors by Hi-Fi. So this is largely a silent issue, bookended by John and Damien's super shenanigans and crime fighting. So the heart of the issue involves Crypto, the superdog, and Titus, the bat hound, working on a case involving missing pets. They go to one of my favorite characters, Detective Chimp, to get the team back together. The Super Pets, combining old and new characters, which I was Googling like crazy, trying to figure out who all these characters were, and some of them are old and some of them are new. So you get a team that's made up of Crypto, Titus, Flexi the Plastic Bird, Clay Critter, Bat Cow, and Streaky the Super Cat. We learned that the Super Pets were torn apart by differences between Crypto and Streaky. Through a fantastic silent pages of barks, meows, and moos, we get the team coming together, and they get to the bottom of the case and save all the little puppers, doggos, and kitties that are involved. I thought this was fantastic. I'm a big sucker for silent issues, because you have to convey a story through the strength of the way you tell the story without relying too much on dialogue. They'll occasionally have a character pop up can speak to break up kind of the looks that the animals giving each other and the barks and stuff. But I thought it was really good the way that they did it. Like, I had a sense of the nature of the conflict between Streaky and Crypto, which I thought was interesting. 
I just, I found the book to be charming and cute. There are certain panels where they do some jokes that I thought were really funny. Like, there's a part that's basically a replay of the scene in Star Wars where Han Solo is being chased by the stormtroopers, then he's chasing them with Plasty being chased by a bunch of dogs, then turning into an animal and chasing them back. The way that the animals have expressions on their face that convey thought and emotion is really good. This book was just, it was charming and cute. I really like the way Peter J. Tomasi writes these young characters. He gives them kind of heart and interest and a sense of uh, adventure in here. And these animals are awesome. So I really enjoyed this one as a cute little book that you could give to someone of any age and they would like it. What'd you think of it? I've got a couple points here, counterpoints maybe to what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about, this being a silent issue. There's fucking dialogue in almost every goddamn panel. You're just not synced enough, man, to understand what they're saying, man. I guess that's true. They do say bark and meow probably a hundred times in this issue. Constant, constant dialogue. Should let go of my uh, my human privilege. Human privilege. Yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> also, this is fucking dark. This is a dark issue. I don't know what you're talking about for kids. This is totally inappropriate for children. God damn. This gets serious, man. Fucking interrelationship work. I mean, it's just, I don't know if I'd allow like my 16-year-old even to read this. It's just like Supernatural is tamer than this. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It is a fun, fun read. I think the reason why Titus is in this and not Ace is that I think Titus is Robin's dog. Mm. Crypto is ostensibly Superboy's dog. So I think this is supposed to be Batboy and Superboy. No, I'm sorry, Superboy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that where he's in the beginning where he's giving his speech to the evildoers and then John gets hit with like a car, <laughs> like he interrupts his speech. That was cute. It is fun. Like I said, it's not a silent issue. There's dialogue in almost every single panel. Don't like issues generally that are super silent. I get them from an artistic standpoint, but from another standpoint, they're over too fast and I don't like comics that are over too fast. It's not that I don't like the stories that they're telling and I don't get the silent stuff. It's just it goes real fast because I interpret visual really fucking quickly. (laughs) This was a a fun, fun instead of a read because it's not really (laughs) stuff that I really understand because, you know, human privilege. (laughs) You know, comics are words and pictures together that tell a story here. And I think that they, with the sound effects and the animal dialogue, the way that the pictures clearly tell you the story, I think work really well. And they do break it up. You'll get like two or three pages of that. And then you'll have like a panel where someone comes up and actually talks. Because if it was just 30 pages of bark, bark, meow, meow, that would get probably pretty old pretty quick. (laughs) You're like, that would drive me fucking insane. But you get Detective Chimp explaining things. You get the kidnapper popping up and explaining his stuff. I just really liked it. I liked the little panel with Streaky showing her feelings about crypto later on. The little heart with the crypto in it. That's cute, you know. And I'm telling you, Paul Pelletier must love drawing animals. He might hate it after drawing this many different animals. But man, there are a lot of different dogs in here that all look unique. And correct. They all look right. Yeah, and they all look real good, you know? Like fire and water, animals are not easy to fucking draw when you basically you're practiced at drawing humans a particular way. Then going and getting animals in that same style, but getting them like correct is not freaking easy. And eyes, because you just you practice doing human eyes. Animal eyes are not the same thing. And it's it's really difficult to get that halfway point. Because like crypto has kind of not human eyes, but not really dog eyes. Right. Because he's not a dog. He's an alien. It's a, a masterful job. I thought it was really good. And when your animals both look like animals and you're also calling on them to do a lot of face acting as well to convey thoughts and emotion that gets even trickier here so you know 
although this may look like it's just a bunch of animals running around shooting laser beams out of their eyes and stuff, it actually is a really good use of art and the storytelling medium. I really like it. I laughed throughout it. I was interested in it. I thought it was cute. It was kind of everything I like about Super Sons distilled down into an animal story. I will use a line from Damien. I will give it four. My mission is the night, corn cob. This is the day. Yeah, I love that. I was like, no, no, this one's you, fucker. Yeah, you get to clean up all the dog poop. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give it four. Yeah, the missing dogs. Mission accomplished, apparently. <laughs> I also like the little paw bump at the end between the two dogs. They're <laughs> like, super pets. Super pets. Just <laughs> <laughs> fun, you know? All right, and now for pull, pass, or complain about it on the internet. This week, we only actually have one Pull past and complain about it on the internet. Starcock number 35 from Marvel Comics, written by Chad Bowers and Chris Sims, pencils and inks by Kev Walker, and colors by Java Tartaglia. This is one of those, uh, hey, we're only putting one more of these out because we're not going to bring this series back books. Though I'm sure you probably think that they should bring this book back, The Powell. So I personally am going to give this particular book a pull. I am going to pass on this one. You're going to pass? Gonna pass on this one. I found it kind of confusing and not very compelling. Oh, you didn't read Darkhawk, did you? Not really, but if you're gonna be doing these, they should serve kind of as an introduction to the character. And while I was introduced to the character, I did not care about the character. And I mean, I've read stuff with the Raptors and Guardians and all that, so I kind of get what's going on. I just don't find it, I don't find the characters very likable or interesting. That's fair. It is a very 90s book. I will pass on this one. I think most of these one-shots I've passed on, except for the Silver Sable one. I like that one a lot. The one thing that, if if anybody does want to see Darkhawk, uh, even though this is a one-shot issue, the good news is he's looks like he's heading out into space, and he'll probably take over the Guardians of the Galaxy book, like the fucking Novacore are. So, don't worry. <laughs> he'll show up in Guardians, I'm sure. So for next week, we've got DC Universe Holiday Special number one and Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. We also have some more books for Pull Pass Complain. We have Batman White Knight number three, Avengers number 974, Paradise number one, and Sleepless number one. So that was the world of comics for this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcasts on original streaming media, Cut the Cord, at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.
had your way. Oh, you're gonna miss me, honey, when I 